in this chapel service, and we're, it's mandatory, and this preacher gets up there, he is wearing, like, the best suit I have ever seen in my life. Like, he has just, like, completely, uh, he's got the gold, like, cufflinks, the suit is impeccably tailored, and he is telling us about faith. And he says, you know, if you just have enough faith, then God is going to not only provide for your needs, but he's going to give you so much, you won't even have room to receive it. And like, at some level, I'm kind of vibing with this. I'm like, yeah, like Paul says, more than we could ask or imagine. We sang that, right? Like that is what God wants to impart to us. But then he says, and that's why I have a brand new G6 jet. I was like, okay, plot twist. Uh, That is what, and I was like, okay. Again, there's part of me that's like, you know, that'd be cool, but I'm not sure that's uh, in there. But, and, and so I reflect on this, and I don't know what experiences you've had with Christians and money, with Christian leaders and talking about money, with church environments and finance. I don't know where you're coming from in your own financial situation. I don't know what you walked into this room carrying in your wallet. I don't know your reality. But today, we're going to talk about wealth. We've been in this series on idolatry. And idolatry is simply a way of describing gods that are less than gods. Less than the God of the universe, the creator of all, the one who made it all. Idolatry is just simply a way of saying we worship the things our hands have made. And the Bible constantly warns us against idolatry because as Christopher Wright says, idolatry is radical self-harm. When we worship the things that our hands have made, we become like them. And when we become like things that can't save us, that don't love us, we become less than human. We become something subhuman. And today we want to look at the idol of wealth. Now, according to the Children's Defense Fund, which was founded by Marion Wright Edelman, who marched with Martin Luther King, in their State of Children Report 2020, 39% of the total U.S. wealth is held by the richest 1% of households. In 2018, the gap between the incomes of the richest and the poorest in America grew to its widest margin in almost 50 years. The three richest men in the United States, you know their names, Jeff Bezos, Bill Gates, Warren Buffett, hold as much wealth as the entire bottom half of Americans. That is more than 160 million people. In 2017, the median income of white households with children was $88,200. This is median income. The median income, family income for black households with children was $40,000. The median family income of Hispanic households with children, $46,400. So we see that this doesn't just have individual implications, but begins to systematize, to metastasize in ways in our culture. We look at median net worth, which is a way of saying, surveying assets, like how much are you worth in the economy of the American imagination. The median net worth of white families, $139,000. That's almost 11 times more than black families who checked in at $12,780. Almost seven times more than Hispanic families, which checked in at $19,990. You see, 
these are stories that have long preceded us. There are historical decisions that have been made. There are uh, systems of racism and white supremacy that have been built into these things that have led us and precipitated these events. Nearly one in five children of color in America, 20.5% are poor. And again, as we think about what does it mean for idolatry to infuse its way into a society, what does it begin to do? It begins to create inequity. It begins to create a society that doesn't look like the shalom that God has designed us for. In March 2021, Congress, as a part of the American Rescue Plan, began distributing half of the child tax credit up front. And all the parents said, amen. Thank you. Effectively, this resulted in millions of Americans receiving a check from the federal government. They also closed a loophole. I didn't know this was a thing. Congress closed a loophole that prevented some families from receiving the whole benefit because, get this, they earned too little. According to Megan Curran, policy director at the Columbia University Center on Poverty and Social Policy, the first payment alone that was distributed in July of 2021 kept 3 million children out of poverty. The U.S. Census Bureau concluded that families learning or earning less than $35,000 a year received these payments, and they spent it on things like basic necessities, food, clothing, utility bills, school supplies, and rent. People were receiving this money and then buying the things that they needed for their families. Now, of course, this comes with a cost, right? We can't just, money doesn't just imaginarily appear out of nowhere. This cost would, would, to the taxpayer would, would result in about $100 billion more per year for taxpayers. Now, you may be wondering, did I walk into a church service or a policy meeting? And I'd be the first one to tell you a couple things. First of all, I'm no economist. Like, I don't live in that world. I'm interested. I'm fascinated. But I am no economist. And also, a good deal of my knowledge of the workings of the federal government comes from uh, dramas that were scripted by Aaron Sorkin. <laughs> so what I'm not telling you is that any of this is sinful. But I would guess... If we went to D.C. and we surveyed all the members of the U.S. House of Representatives, all the senators, the president and his aides, and we would ask them the simple question, do you want children to live in poverty? They would say no, because at the very least, that's good politics, right? And so unequivocally, they would say, no, we don't want children to, look at, or to live in poverty. But if we were to look at the way the federal government spends the money, that we give in taxes, the money that it raises, then something else would be prioritized in the budget. Now there's an old saying, put your money where your mouth is. Or as Jesus says, where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. In Ecclesia, today we're, we're in this series on idolatry and wealth. And here's what I want to avoid for us today. When it comes to wealth, it is so easy for us to look at everybody else and be like, <laughs> Bezos, better watch out. Like, you know, God's, God's judgment is coming. Like, it's so easy for us to project upon everybody else the, the invitation to repentance that God has for us individually. 
And you see, Jesus talked about money a lot because money is one of the most obvious connections between our view on the world and the way we actually live in it. Perhaps you've had this experience in another way. You've, had, you've been around uh, people who say they believe in Jesus, that, 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 that he loves them so much, but they're not actually that loving themselves. They're kind of judgmental and mean. They have these very clear lines about who's in and who's out. And you see the disconnect between that. And oftentimes the disconnect that's present in our lives between the way that we are called to view the world in light of King Jesus and the way that we actually live in the world when it comes to our finances is so pronounced. Because faith in Jesus, friends, is not a proposition. It's not if you check the right boxes and you believe the right things that Jesus is like, okay, cool. You have crossed the intellectual threshold it requires to be a part of my people. Faith in Jesus is allegiance to Jesus. Jesus was the word of God made flesh. Everything that God spoke and promised and challenged us to, Jesus lived out. He was a harmony of faith and deed. And this is the life that he empowers us to live in his spirit. We are called to be people who believe incredible things, but also live them. And so for us, we have to begin to look at the disconnect between how we say we view the world and how we live our lives in the world. And we're going to talk about something that is personal to all of us. Jesus told something like 40 parables in the Gospels, and over a fourth of them had something to do with money. When Jesus says to us, where your treasure is, there your heart is, he's saying to us that the way we spend our money is directly tied to the God that we claim to worship. How we spend money and our view on what money is and what it is for has everything to say about who or what we suppose to be God. Now, I'm going to give you a little insight. Typically, a sermon has a framing. I tell you the big, beautiful truth, and then I invite you to some application. Here's what you do with that. But I'm going to reverse that today. I'm going to give you the challenge, the application right here at the beginning. And then I'm going to frame it for you so beautifully that you'll be like, that is good news. <laughs> Jesus says where our treasure is, our heart is. And we cannot serve God and mammon. Mammon, often translated wealth, was a, was a deity associated with power and money and wealth. And Jesus says you can't serve both. You can't serve the creator of all and this mammon who requires sacrifice and worship in its own way. There is a contest for our view on finances that is really a contest for our hearts. Jacques Elyel, who's a philosopher, says, We absolutely must not minimize the parallel that Jesus draws between God and mammon. He's not using a rhetorical figure, but is pointing out a reality. God as a person and mammon as a person find themselves in conflict. And he goes on to say, this is a spiritual battle that must be translated into our behavior in the world. There is one act par excellence which profanes money by going directly against the law of money, an act for which money is not made. And this act is giving. In the biblical view, this is precisely how giving which is a consecration to God, is seen. It is, as a matter of a fact, the penetration of grace into the world of competition and selling. 
money in the Christian life is made to be given away. The Bible talks about offering our first fruits. Again, these were agrarian people. They were not distanced like so many of you and I are from the realities of the land. They relied upon the seasons, upon harvest. They relied upon God to provide in ways that we do, we just often aren't aware of. And so for them, when they reaped a harvest, they would take the first 10% of that harvest and they would give it back to God. Because their behavior was aligning with their faith. The God that they proclaimed with their mouths was being worshipped with their bodies. They were saying, God, you are the giver of every good thing. Everything we have is from you. And I just want to challenge you right here at the beginning to understand our lives through a lens of a first fruit offering. To say to God, everything I have is from you. And we're talking specifically about money today. You could extrapolate this in so many ways about your time, your energy, all that kind of stuff. But I'm talking about money. And just saying, God, you have given this to me. And what a joy it is to give it back to you. And friends, it's not about the amount. There are varying income levels in this room right now. The only people that were ever praised for the amount that they gave, there were two, two women. One we'll meet later who pours out a bottle of perfume on Jesus' feet. Another, a widow, who pulled literally the lint from her pocket and put it in the offering. Jesus says she's given more than most here. So it's not about the amount. But I want to challenge you to, to, to take a step today to move toward giving 10% of your income to undo the power of this idol of wealth in our lives and culture. We as a church, we give away 10% of the offering that we receive. We're a part of a denomination that helped us be here in this place. It planted us. And so part of that construct is we give back to that. Now, it's not just like a, okay, thank you for that. They're doing beautiful work all around the world. They're planting more churches. They're planting churches in environments where it's not easy to plant churches. They're on the ground in the Ukraine right now. They're in places like Yemen and Libya. So for me, it's a part of our life together that we get to bear witness to that. And I'm overjoyed at that. My goal for us as a community is that that number would continue to rise and rise. That because of what God is doing in our midst, that we would give more than 10% away. Because God is the creator, as we'll see, and the giver of all. But I want to challenge you, don't give God the leftovers. John Wesley had a very simple praxis for his uh, churches. He said, earn all you can, save all you can, and give all you can. And I think many of us religiously do the first two. And I want to challenge you to make giving to God your first priority because it is releasing the chains that mammon, which is a less than God that demands worship and sacrifice from us, release the chains that he has so many of us in. In the book Rich Dad, Poor Dad, Robert Kiyosaki tells of his own experience working for a wealthy store owner. And he's sort of, he's contrasting this experience with this wealthy store owner with his own experience with his, his own father. He comes from a poorer family. And he's sort of outlining the lessons that he is learning. And he's working for the store owner who he calls Rich Dad in the book for free in hopes that he might learn a lesson about wealth long term. And Rich Dad says to Robert Kiyosaki, he says, most people have a price. And they have a price because of human emotions named fear and greed. 
First, the fear of being without money motivates us to work hard. And then once we get the paycheck, greed or desire starts us thinking about all the wonderful things that money can buy. The pattern is then set. The pattern to get up, go to work, pay bills, get up, go to work, pay bills. People's lives are forever controlled by two emotions, fear and greed. Offer them more money and they continue the cycle by increasing their spending. This is what I call the rat race. Sounds like slavery. Sounds like a cycle that gets uh, baked into our DNA. Rich Dad then offers a very simple alternative. And he says the alternative to the rat race, the alternative to being led by uh, emotions like fear and greed is simply this, telling the truth. His diagnosis of the rat race is that most people are letting their emotions guide their lives and their decision making. And this inevitably leads to his conclusion. Money is running most people's lives, and they refuse to tell the truth about that. Money is in control of our emotions and our souls. Now, I think Robert Kiyosaki's proverbial rich dad, this is like the most, uh, the best-selling finance book in, in the history. I think he's on to something so poignant. And I want to riff on his two lies from the vantage point of the scriptures, and I want to tell the truth in the midst of the lies Jesus has harsh warnings reserved for the rich. In Matthew 19, verse 23, Jesus, having had his invitation to follow him for the only time that I could find in the scriptures, rejected. A rich young man comes up to Jesus and says, I want to follow you. Jesus says, follow me. He says, oh, but wait. Sell all you have, give it to the poor, and then come follow me. And this rich young man walks away sad because he has great wealth. And Jesus sorrowfully reflects upon this man's departure in verse 23. He says, then Jesus said to his disciples, truly I tell you, it will be hard for a rich person to enter the kingdom of heaven. Again, I tell you, it is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for someone who is rich to enter the kingdom of God. Now again, it may be tempting for us. In this scenario, to look at everybody else, when we hear rich person, we don't normally think of ourselves, right? You may be like Bill Gates, Warren Buffett. Don't miss Jesus' challenge. But Jesus' words of warning are never designed for us to take upon somebody else. They're never designed for us to be like, hey, you you better watch out. Jesus' words of warning are always designed for us to hear them Personally, there are calls to examine the idols that are present in our own lives. And this is so uh, present. One of the incredible things about Jesus' teaching, if you're familiar with the Sermon on the Mount, it's really like Jesus' most complete teaching given in Matthew 5 through 7, is that that teaching, by and large, was given to a group of peasants. It was given to people who societally were poor. And Jesus has many instructions in that teaching about wealth. And about desiring wealth and about using wealth. Jesus' life, his example, his challenge, challenges both rich and poor. And so today, no matter where you're coming from, no matter what bank account number you dragged in here, Jesus' invitation is for us all. And so my hope is that we understand that this is an issue that is fundamental to our apprenticeship to Jesus. And that it affects us all. And I want to just look at two lies that we so readily believe when it comes to wealth and money. The first lie. We believe the lie that we are self-made. We believe the lie 
that that money in our bank account or the lack thereof is because of our own doing. In the imagination of the scriptures, Pharaoh is the idolater amongst all the idolaters. He's like the symbol of idolatry. He's the symbol for how pride, empire, and injustice conspire to array one against God's good purposes in the world. In the book of Exodus, Pharaoh is basically claiming divine status. He's like God on earth. And he is a God, he, in his mind, who can rival the God of Israel. That's why, like, if you read the book of Exodus, like, you're like, all right, Pharaoh, like, figure it out. You're losing. But you just keep hardening your heart again. You just keep, like, going back to that well. But Exodus is making the point that it is actually God who is hardening Pharaoh's heart. And what the book is saying is that God is so sovereign and that Pharaoh is so bankrupt in his claims to divinity that Pharaoh is at the will of the one true God. That God can harden his heart. If Pharaoh wants to claim divinity, he wants to say, I am God walking among men and women, then God can say, even your will is a plaything in my hands. Now, I want to say this just because as an aside, that should not be taken as a way that God deals with us individually. You know, people get real worried. Is God hardening my heart? Has he rejected me forever? This is not how God deals with us. This is a very a distinct example in the scriptures about the way God deals with empire, the way God deals with those who would cast themselves as an idol. So no, God is not hardening your heart, trying to move you away from him. This is a very unique circumstances about warfare amongst the divine. But... Throughout the Old Testament, Pharaoh appears as a symbol of idolatry, often left unchecked. Ezekiel, one of the great prophets of the exile, picks up on this theme in Ezekiel 29, verse 3. Thus says the Lord God, Ezekiel writes, I am against you, Pharaoh, king of Egypt, the great dragon sprawling in the midst of its channels, saying, My Nile is my own. I made it for myself. Ezekiel, in reflecting upon Pharaoh's own deluded sense of self, is saying that Pharaoh thinks that he sprung the Nile. He thinks he's so big and powerful that it is by his hand that the Nile River started to flow. And this, friends, as we would imagine, is idolatry. And it's here that we begin to see the first lie that idolatry of money and wealth causes us to believe. We believe that we are the creator we believe that we are self-made. Now, none of you would ever say, because I've talked to you, you would never say anything so aggrandizing as, I made the Nile River. I sprung it into existence. But when we bow at the altar of wealth, we subtly start to believe the lie that we are self-made. That is, our success is a result of our own hard work, our determination, and our savvy Pharaoh is an example offered to us as a warning. Do not believe the lie that you are self-made. And this warning, friends, goes both to us when we are successful, when we're doing great, and it goes to us when we are struggling. And you can see how this lie cut bo cuts both ways. If we are the product of our own hands and you gain wealth, things go well for you, you can delude yourself into thinking that you did it all. And then on the other side, if you're struggling, if things are not adding up, if there's too much month at the end of the money, if you're in this place where you're like, I don't feel like my needs are being provided for, we can buy into the lie that our provision and our sustenance all, 
all relies upon us. And in doing so, we miss the truth woven throughout the story of the scriptures. Moses gives a warning to the people that were liberated under the foot of Pharaoh's destructive idolatry. The slaves who have become free. And God warns them away from this impulse. You can, like, you can see it's such a simple arc. The people were slaves. But God is saying, even as they're coming out of that season of slavery, be careful. Because even though you were slaves, we are a forgetful people. We so easily forget that God has done something for us. And we begin to think that we have done it ourselves. And Moses says in Deuteronomy chapter 8, he says, You shall eat your fill and bless the Lord your God for the good land that he has given you. This is the promise that God is bringing us into. He says this, though. Take care that you do not forget the Lord your God. By failing to keep his commandments, his ordinances, and his statutes, which I'm commanding you today, do not say to yourself, my power and the might of my own hand have gotten me this wealth. But remember, remember the Lord your God, for it is he who gives you power to get wealth, so that he may confirm his covenant that he swore to your ancestors as he is doing today. If you do not, if you do forget the Lord your God and follow other gods to serve and worship them, I solemnly warn you today that you shall surely perish. Like the nations that the Lord is destroying before you, so shall you perish because you would not obey the voice of the Lord your God. And Ecclesia, that is a solemn warning, but here is the goodness, the truth. Everything you have is a gift from God. What a freeing revelation that is that you don't need to clutch onto things so tightly. You don't need to hold them so tightly because you didn't earn them in the first place. They're a gift from God. It all comes from the hand who made it all. And you know what? God delights in giving good gifts to his children. You know, one of the most amazing things each year is at Christmas time when Courtney mostly Courtney, but I get to participate a little bit, has, has thought so beautifully about what our kids, like what would bring them joy. And it's just this simple and extravagant exchange of just saying, I thought this would be meaningful to you. And our kids, like they're so overjoyed by this receiving of this good gift. Ecclesia, God gives gifts like this. He likes for you to have joy. He likes for you to delight in the things that he has made. You are not responsible for securing your own future. And if I could just you know, drill that truth into you, you are not your own. As Paul reflects, you were bought with a price. You are not responsible for holding up the world on your shoulders. There is a God who holds the world in his hands. You are responsible for being grateful, for remembering, for saying thank you, God, for simple things, and for being a good steward of that which he has put in your hand, of seeking to be wise and to be faithful and seeing all that he has given you as a seed to bring life in his kingdom. Jesus tells the people listening in the Sermon on the Mount in Matthew 6, he says, No one can serve two masters, for a slave will either hate the one and love the other, or be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and wealth. Therefore, here's the good news, 
I tell you, do not worry about your life, what you will eat or what you will drink or about your body, what you will wear. Is not life more than food? He says, look at the birds of the air. They don't reap, they don't sow, and yet God takes care of them. Look at the flowers of the field. They don't do anything to toil for the way that they are dressed, and yet they are clothed more splendidly than Solomon. Your father knows that you need all these things. And then he says this in verse 33. Strive first for the kingdom of God and his righteousness. And all of these things that you need, even so many good things that you want, will be added to you as well. Ecclesia, this is good news. We are not responsible, but we are the children of an extravagant God who has called us his children. Psalm 24 says, the earth is the Lord's and everything in it, the world and all who live in it. This is God's world. It is woven through with peace. And he invites us to steward this world, this time, this energy, these resources that he has given us. To be a witness to his kingdom and his shalom. John chapter 12 says, six days before the Passover, Jesus came to Bethany, the home of Lazarus. Whom he had raised from the dead. Side note. There, they gave a dinner for him. Martha served, and Lazarus was one of those at the table with him. Mary took a pound of costly perfume, made of pure nard, anointed Jesus' feet, and wiped them with her hair. The house was filled with the fragrance of the perfume. But Judas Iscariot, one of his disciples, the one who was about to betray him, said, Why was this perfume not sold for 300 denarii and the money given to the poor? John adds a note. He said this not because he cared about the poor, but because he was a thief. He kept the common purse and used to steal what was put into it. And Jesus said, leave her alone. She bought it so that she might keep it for the day of my burial. You will always have the poor with you, but you do not always have me. And here again, we see Kiyosaki's two lies kind of interwoven in the response of Judas. Judas is both greedy and fearful. He will later become synonymous with the 30 pieces of silver that he betrays, or he trades to betray Jesus. But in his fear and greed, he embodies a lie that we so often believe, so thoroughly that it's difficult to even name and much more difficult to overcome. And I'm going to give you the lie here. We believe the lie that the world is built on the principle of zero-sum scarcity. Let me just say that more simply. We believe that there will not be enough. Scarcity refers to a basic economics problem. The gap between limited resources and theoretically limitless ones. This situation requires people to make decisions about how to allocate resources efficiently in order to satisfy basic needs and as many wants as possible. And this is the fundamental operating system of our economy, supply and demand. And it turns out that the supply of gas has gone down, and the demand has stayed the same, and therefore the prices have gone up. We believe that there won't be enough. We believe that we have to look out for number one. Did any of you hoard toilet paper in March of 2020? I guess I wouldn't be looking out for number one. But the kingdom of Jesus is not built... That was so terrible. <laughs> oh, man. The kingdom of Jesus is not built on efficiency or scarcity. 
it is built on the extravagant love of God and the abundance of the creator. I told you this is good news. Judas is so concerned about the bottle of perfume and all that it could be used for. He's concerned about its efficiency. But Jesus is not worried about the lost bottle of perfume because he knows that the kingdom of God is built upon abundance and that gifts offered to Jesus in worship and in faithful devotion are seeds watered by gratitude of what God has done for us in our lives and they're planted in the soil of God's bountiful harvest. In Matthew and Mark's accounting of this event, as the woman pours the perfume on Jesus' feet, Jesus honors this woman's extravagance with his own statement of extravagance. He says, whenever the good news is proclaimed, what this woman has done for me will be told all throughout history. Can you imagine that you could do something today that would echo throughout history? I mean, isn't this what people that deem themselves great throughout history have all been chasing? To be people of consequence? To be people of immortality? And yet, one of the few people who ever achieved this was a woman who dumped out her most costly possession on the feet of a king who was condemned to die. Ecclesia, the world is built upon the abundance and the extravagance of the love of God. The world does not operate according to our standards of scarcity, but according to the kingdom economics of abundance. The idol of wealth tells us that we have to endlessly acquire, accumulate, consume, but the story of King Jesus calls us to be like our Savior and to give it all Mako Fujimura reflecting on the timeline of when this woman poured out the perfume on Jesus' feet and when Jesus was crucified, says this. He says, the only earthly possession Christ wore on the cross was the aroma of the perfume that Mary poured upon him. I think about the way the perfume pervades every space that we walk in. Jesus is stripped naked. He is laid bare giving of his life, laying himself down. And yet the aroma of this act of worship carries him. Ecclesia, let us not buy into the lie that we are self-made. Whether for good or when we are in pain and struggling, but let us not buy into the lie that this world is built upon scarcity, but let us lean into the abundance of our God, the giver of every good thing. I'm going to invite our worship team forward. Today, as we talk about a faith that is lived out in real life, I want to just challenge you with that challenge I gave you before. If you're here today, you know where you are with God, like you have this life with God, let him challenge you in this way, that perhaps you need to take a step in offering the first fruits of your life to God. But I also want to make a call to those of you who may think that there is a scarcity in the economy of mercy. That God saves some people, but he doesn't save you. That God has enough grace and mercy for what some people have done, but he doesn't have enough grace and mercy for your life, for the shame that you carry around, for your own sense of alienation to God. And I just want to simply say, look at the cross of Jesus. Though it seemed like his life was being expired, though it seemed like that was scarcity in all of its finality, that Jesus' very life was being snuffed out, that as Jesus offers himself, what we find is the abundance, the never-ending, never-exhausted abundance of resurrection. 
Jesus on that cross gives it all. And what we find is that at the bottom of God giving his all is that there is always more. There is always more mercy. There is always more life. There is always more grace. There is always more goodness. And I can see it today. We are called to live in the world as if Jesus is king. And I want to simply invite you. If you have been living at arm's length to that mercy, or you've been living in a mercy scarcity economy, come and find the extravagant, abundant love of Jesus that he extends to each one of us. You don't have to live the lie that you are self-made. You don't have to live the lie that you live in a world of scarcity. God's abundance invites you, and his mercy proclaims to you today. I'm going to pray and then we're going to move to the table. The expression put in flesh of Jesus' extravagant love for us. I just want to invite you to sit and allow the Holy Spirit to bring his presence before you. He will communicate the things that I can't say. God loves you and he is for you. He is providing for you. He has goodness for you. And he is welcoming you home. Jesus, thank you for today. God, thank you that even in a talk about money, God, and I know many of us, even the talk of money kind of gives us those tight feelings in our chest and our stomach and our shoulders. God, even reflecting upon your perspective on money, we see the beautiful goodness with which you have loved and approached and given yourself on behalf of the poor. So God, I just want to pray for your Holy Spirit to come over these next few moments expectantly, God. That there are those in here today that need your presence, God. They need something that is not just something that resembles you, something that talks about you, but your very presence in this place, God. We are faithful and expectant enough to believe that you would be here in our midst. So God, as we receive from this table, God, would you confirm, would you challenge? Would you bring freedom and release, God? Would you bring us new imaginations for what our small offerings could be in the hands of the one who blesses and breaks and gives, God? So come, Holy Spirit. We open this place to you, Lord Jesus. We love you. We praise you. It's in your beautiful name we pray. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit.